Well, good morning. It is a pleasure to be here, uh, this great space, and be with you all, and to just see what God is doing in and among you. And uh, I think I was here around 18 months ago or something like that, and uh, so it's good to visit you again and, and to send you greetings from down the river. So we live in Laporte City, which is down the river from here, and uh, we uh, are ten- attending a church in Vinton now. So just recently, uh, I was an elder at Candeo, and then I've accepted a pastoral position at a church in Vinton, First Baptist in Vinton, so even farther down the river. So, uh, but it's good to be with you this morning, and uh, I would invite you to open your Bibles to Psalms 147. I love this series you're in, the summer of Psalms, and uh, this is a, a wonderful psalm right towards the end of the book of Psalms, Psalm 147. So as you're opening it, just give you a, a couple minutes to uh, find it in your Bibles or on your phones, and I'll be reading all 20 verses, Psalm 147. So would you... Follow along as I read. God's word says this. Praise the Lord. For it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant. And a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble and he casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the earth, or He covers the heaven with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts of the field food and the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor His pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him in those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Father, we ask that you would bless us as we 
worship you in this way. And as it has been reminded so well this morning that there are different ways we are worshiping this morning, we want to hear from you now and uh, hear from you from one, Psalm 147. We want to be prepared to respond appropriately to what you have to say to us. So be with us as, we, as I speak and as we engage this uh, passage with our minds. We ask you in Christ's name. Amen. So why are you here? Why are you here in this room this morning? Recently, I've spent some Sundays at home. That's kind of unusual in our family. We've spent some weeks and months, actually, uh, at home doing pajama church. I have to admit, I kind of enjoyed pajama church, sitting with a cup of coffee and the family around the TV and, and watching a streaming video. But why are you here now? Why are those that are tuning in, why are they tuning in? Why are you here? It's a serious question, and a question you have to ask yourself once in a while. We go on our lives, maybe, and we don't really reflect on why it is we do what we do. We get into a pattern. Why are you here? Well, I can think of some good reasons, and I want to invite you to do something. This is a little bit of an exercise, so I want you to close your eyes, okay? Close your eyes, and I want you to consider three reasons. So here are some reasons we're here. It's the right thing to do. Reason one, it's right. There's right and there's wrong, and we've chosen to do what's right. Whether we're tuning in or we're here in person, it's, it's good that we're hearing from God, that we're worshiping God. It's the right thing to do. Option two, because you enjoy it. You just love to do this. It's, it's a, a pleasure to be here. Option three, it's just proper. It makes sense. It's appropriate. It's fitting to be here this morning or to tune in. So as you think about those three things, your eyes are still closed. I'm just curious, which one of those maybe you identify with most? Do you identify with number one? It's the right thing to do. If you do, your eyes are still closed, raise your hand. That's kind of the main reason you're here. Is it the right thing to do? Okay, you can put your hands down. Number two, remember it was because you enjoy it. It's fun to be here. Is that your main reason? No one, really. Nobody enjoys... No, I'm kidding. There's several people <laughs> raising their hands this morning. Number three, because it makes sense. Where else would we be? You've thought about it, and, and this is, like it or not, the most sensible place to be. So you can put your hands down. Well, those are kind of all good reasons, and maybe you didn't raise your hand because you have another reason. All good whys. You can open your eyes. These are all good whys, but maybe they speak to our motivation more than our purpose. Maybe those whys are good whys, but they're lesser whys that build and support a greater why. The question maybe isn't what motivates us to come, not that kind of why, but what is the greater purpose? What's the deeper reason that we're here, the, the bigger why? The psalmist would say, if you look at this psalm with me, verse 1, right at the beginning, praise the Lord. He gives a reason 
to be together. Praise the Lord. And look how he ends the psalm. He says the same thing. Praise the Lord. From beginning to end, from first to last, he gives this purpose. Praise the Lord. To glorify God, you might say. When you got up this morning and prepared to come, or uh, when you served in some capacity, or when you uh, found your seats, when you said hi to one another, all of this is towards really one purpose, glorifying God, praising the Lord. It's good to remember this. I remember one of the earliest memories I have of church. It's uh, kind of a children's kind of time in church, and uh, we sang a song. It was in children's ministry, and we split up between boys and girls to sing. And the boys would stand, and the girls would stand. We'd take turns, and we'd have one line, easy to remember. The boys said, praise the Lord, and the girls said, hallelujah. And we went back and forth. It was almost like a battle, like the first worship war, you know? I thought we were arguing, honestly. I thought as the Young ladies would sing hallelujah, and this had this kind of elegant strength about it, this soaring melody. And then the boys would take their turn and want to assert kind of a commanding tone, maybe a foundation uh, to the girls singing. thought maybe we were disagreeing over who was right and who was wrong. Should we say hallelujah or praise the Lord? But actually in this psalm, some of your translations might say this. I'm reading from the ESV. It says praise the Lord, but... Certain translations say, hallelujah. That's the Hebrew here, actually. It's two words in the Hebrew. So at the beginning of this psalm and at the end, praise the Lord, hallelujah, it has this meaning, two words. Hallel is to praise the Lord. It's a verb. It's a command. Praise the Lord. Or to praise. And then the second part, Yah, is a contraction of Yahweh. Are you familiar with that word? Or Jehovah, sometimes it's rendered that way. It's the same name that you would have seen in Exodus 3 where God reveals himself to Moses and he says, I am who I am. I am who I am. Praise that God. If you see in your Bibles ever where it says, it has all caps and it says Lord in all caps, it's that word, Yahweh. There's a purpose for us here this morning, to glorify God. Actually, I remember an old catechism. Do you know what a catechism is? It's a method of teaching where there's a rote question and a rote answer, and you memorize the answer. There's a catechism that goes like this. What is the chief end of man? What is his great purpose? And the answer is to glorify God. And it's interesting, it adds, and to enjoy Him forever to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. First Corinthians might come to mind. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Praise the Lord. That's the title. Praise ye the Lord is what we said as little boys. And uh, that's the title of the sermon from Psalm 147. In the structure, look at your psalm here, 147. This is interesting and helpful to see the structure of this psalm. So it's in three parts. If you're like me, you have a Bible maybe that just has verse by verse so you can keep your place, but if this were put into paragraphs, there would be three parts. 
And each part is introduced with a statement, a command. Praise the Lord. So verse 1, praise the Lord. Verse 7, sing to the Lord. And verse 12, praise the Lord. You see those parts. That's the beginning of the part. And then each part ends with a main point, and that's what we'll look at. So the sermon will be structured around this psalm, and the main points will come at the end of each section. I'll suggest that they'll be a little bit surprising to you. So these surprising main points. I want to point out one more thing, and it's also a set of three here. In verse 1, if you'll read that with me, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. These three words are almost like a key to the three sections, good, pleasant, and fitting. So three sections, three main points, three key words. Part one, it's good to praise the Lord. Stephen Lawson, in his commentary on this psalm, he points this out. He says, this psalm, to give you a context, is considered to be post-exilic. That means it's after an exile or after the captivity of Israel. It's written after the time of Israel's return to Jerusalem from the Babylonian captivity. It was probably written to celebrate the completion of the rebuilt wall around Jerusalem under Nehemiah's leadership, which you can read about in Nehemiah 12. And we see that, that it says the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts. Think about this. What a day that was that this psalm was written for. These people of the nation of Israel had been in captivity for 70 years. Some of us have missed gathering together as God's people for a few weeks or even months. This group of people had perhaps had a whole generation of people that had never had the privilege of gathering together. What a day that was. This was written for that day. And But think about this. These walls have been rebuilt. They're celebrating. But there's some repairs that are still going on. It was just good for me to reflect on this. What other repairs are still going on? Do you think maybe these uh, exiles who have been returned and they're gathered together here still have some hurts, still have some brokenheartedness, some wounds that are hidden. And isn't it the hidden wounds that take the longest to rebuild, to heal? It says here in this, this psalm, in verse 3, God heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds, even their hidden ones. Praise the Lord. It's good to praise the Lord. Move on to verse 4 and 5. Here the psalmist begins to uh, give us a scope of the psalm. If the context of the psalm was very specific, you think about this, it was written for a specific day on a calendar. Very special psalm in that way. But the scope of this psalm, I would say, is cosmic. It's on the grand scale. He determines the number of stars. He gives them all their names. You almost hear an echo of Genesis 15 here. You remember Genesis 
and uh, Abram and his call to follow God. And God told him, I will make your descendants, your offspring, like the number of stars that cannot be counted. And just like uh, God named Abram, Abraham, in Genesis 17, look how God names each star. You know, to name something, doesn't that show an intimate care, an intimate care for that thing? This is a little embarrassing of of an anecdote to share, but uh, we have four kids. Two of them are here today, and uh, none of them had a name for day one or even day two. Some of them, I think, might have been day three. It was a tall order. It just seemed like such a big responsibility. An intimate care goes into naming something, and God names each star. It says in verse 5, his understanding is beyond measure, or it might say infinite in your translation. Infinite understanding. My son, our youngest, uh, challenged me the other other day with an idea. He says, Dad, if you have an infinite number and you remove, I don't remember, he said five from that infinite number, how many do you have left? I guess I'd never thought about that. You still have an infinite number. What if you remove a million, I would say? What if you remove almost an infinite number from an infinite number, and it's still infinite? I don't even understand infinity. God's mind, His understanding, not only can conceptualize infinity, but it is infinite. His understanding is infinite. Well, we come to our first main point. So this is the end of the first section. You can see in verse 6 that something, I would say, surprising happens here. So we've been talking about how good it is to praise the Lord. That's our key word, that it's good. But maybe it's worth noting at this point that what manner of goodness is this? Is it good like a good fireworks display or a good meal or a good weather forecast. It's not that kind of good. So the the kind of good that we're talking about in verses 1 through 6 is a moral goodness, a sense of right and wrong. This first section is specific. It's about goodness and wickedness, you might say. What does it say in verse 6? God casts the wicked to the ground. But here's the surprising part. What would be the opposite of evil? What would be the opposite of wickedness? We would all probably conclude that goodness is the opposite. God says in this part of His Word that humility is the opposite. It's a surprise. Israel was God's chosen people. They'd gone into captivity because of their wickedness. That was God's judgment. But for them to be gathered together and return to Him did not, was not contingent upon their ability to be good, but their willingness to be humble before Him. God casts the wicked to the ground, but He lifts up the humble. And that is a surprising fact about God. It's really shocking when we think about our sense of right and wrong. It's really two-dimensional compared to God's 
gospel. We heard it earlier explained so well. I want to invite anybody here to consider this gospel right now. It's probably good that this is probably the most important thing that I could say, and it's in the first third, right up front. To be reconciled with God doesn't involve your ability to lift yourself up by your bootstraps, to uh, lift yourself up. It requires you to allow God to lift you up, to be forgiven in Jesus Christ. Surprising gospel, even here in the Old Testament, and something to celebrate. It's good to praise the Lord. It's good in a moral way, and it is good in a surprising way. Well, part two. It's pleasant to praise the Lord. Look at verse 7. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. Praising the Lord was characterized, you might say, by humility in the first part. In the second part, it should be characterized by thankfulness, by thanksgiving. It's pleasant, it's delightful to praise the Lord. Look how God's goodness is highlighted. Verses 8 and 9. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. This is God's goodness poured out on the humble and the wicked alike, on everyone. Theologians would call this common grace. It's just the goodness of creation. God's goodness even overflows, you will notice, to creatures that can't make a good or bad choice. Animals, beasts, ravens enjoy God's goodness. It's pleasant to praise the Lord. Look at verse 10. This is an odd verse, if you uh, maybe stumbled on this one. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of man. I learned a word uh, a couple years ago, I think it was, and it's, it's, uh, it's the word, it's hard to say, synecdoche. Synecdoche is uh, a kind of statement that uh, is specific, but it, it, is a, uh, it contains the meaning of a more general thing. You might say, lend me a hand. Would you lend me a hand? That means a lot of things. It means, would you help me? You could use it in a lot of different ways. That's what this verse is doing. It's a synecdoche. It's talking about horses and men's legs. <laughs> But it means it's talking about the strength and the ability of man. And what does it say? God's delight, his pleasure, is not in the strength of the horse nor in the legs of man. See, this delightful pleasure of praising the Lord, it's a two-way street. It's mutual. God takes delight in us, but not in our ability, you might say. Not in our ability. So this is a relationship, and uh, it doesn't involve mutual admiration as much as it is just characterized by uh, sacrificial, unconditional love. Now look at verse 11. This is what I would say is the second surprising thing as I read through this psalm. Remember earlier we noted that uh, it wasn't goodness here that is 
couched as the opposite of wickedness, but humility. And this is surprising in verse 11. Or, uh, verse 11 is uh, we've been reading about God's goodness poured out on creation, enjoyed by everyone. And what do we come to here? But the Lord takes pleasure in those who, what? It says, fear Him, those who hope in His steadfast love. It's just a surprising thing to land on the word fear at this point. Thankfulness, melody, delight, pleasure, and then now fear. Is there anything more defeating or debilitating or immobilizing than fear? I can't think of anything in my life that has been more dramatically that way. Fear is, is just a base emotion, a primal instinct. It's almost a thing unto itself. You can think of the, the quote, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. It's its, its own uh, fearsome thing. My daughters would say, nothing to fear but fear itself and spiders, also spiders. That make, makes the list. But Nothing to fear but fear itself. Well, what is this saying about fearing the Lord? I could tell you what it doesn't mean. Sometimes it's helpful to think about what something does not mean in order to stand, understand what it does mean. It's just hard to understand. Fear, God taking pleasure in us fearing Him. I, I'll uh, read from Genesis 3. This is what it doesn't look like. What it doesn't look like, uh, this is... Adam and Eve, in the garden, Genesis 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord and among, uh, among the trees of the garden. The Lord called out to the man and said, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid, so I hid. I love the illustration on love this morning. That it's, well, it's not an illustration. It's a, it's a fundamental fact about love that it's an action. It's not just words. That's what fear is. It's an action. It matters how you respond. And it also helps us to understand a definition here. It sheds light on this, that how you respond to God in humility and approaching Him, not hiding from Him, is what characterizes godly fear. The psalmist might say something like this at this point. He might say, stop hiding. It's not that kind of fear. Humble yourself. The Lord lifts up the humble. Hope in His steadfast love. Do you see that? The second part of verse 11. And I think that really helps us to see how this could be a pleasant thing. For those who fear Him and hope in His steadfast love. Well, I have a few quotes that I'll read to you. These are, uh, this whole book is quotes. Sometimes I just read pages of this. Uh, this is uh, quotes on the fear of God from some really well-known uh, theologians. Thomas Brown I fear God, yet I am not afraid of Him. Is that your experience? The fear of... This is John Bunyan. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. 
and they that lack the beginning have neither middle nor end. John Calvin says this, The fear of God is the root and origin of all righteousness. Oswald Chambers says, what I, is my favorite, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. When you fear God, you fear nothing else. To fear the Lord is to approach Him in humility, hoping in His perfect, steadfast love, which casts out all fear. To fear the Lord is to approach Him in humility, hoping in His perfect, steadfast love, which casts out all other fear. It's pleasant to praise the Lord. Well, this last section we're moving into now, verse 12. The key word, if you remember uh, from verse 1, is that, that it's fitting, or you might, you're, you might even say beautiful or um, appropriate, some of the translations say. It's fitting to praise the Lord. It, and this section strikes a different tone. I want to strike a different tone if I'm able. I remember uh, listening to a preacher being interviewed and... Um, he was asked, well, when is it appropriate to point your finger at your congregation? Kind of a dangerous thing for a preacher to do. A flawed preacher who could have a lot of fingers pointing at him. When do you point at your finger at your congregation? When do you not stop saying we and you say you? Well, the psalmist here changes his disposition that way. He starts saying you. Read verse 12 with me. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. He's emphasizing that there is a response he expects. Uh, He's saying, you need to remember. You need to respond. What do they need to remember? What is he pointing his finger about? He, he, He points his finger and he says this. And I'll show you how he says it. He says, it's not about you. It's not about you. You know, the world would hear that and probably be offended. I thought I was important. I thought I w- it was all about me. Don't I need to defend that right for it to be all about me? The psalm says it's not about you. What is it about? Actually, would you do me a favor? Would you point your fingers at me? Kids, point your fingers at me. Will you say as loud as you can, it's not about you. Thank you. Thank you. You don't know how good it feels to know it's not about me, especially being up here in front of you all. Well, what is it about? Look at verses 13 and following. He strengthens. He blesses. He makes peace. He he fills you. This is about God's ability and power. It's fitting to praise the Lord. Where else are you going to go? for help? Are you going to turn to your own ability and power? It makes no sense. But this makes sense. It's fitting to praise the Lord. It's appropriate. And like I said, some of your translations might say it's beautiful. It is true in an elegantly true way. It's beautiful. Verses 15 through 18 start to emphasize 
the ability and the power of God in a wonderful way. And this is really good for us Iowans. I don't think uh, if we were in Hawaii this morning, this would make quite as much sense. But in Iowa, the winters can be brutal. The storms can come and just layer upon layer of snow that are hard to deal with. But look how it continues. It starts to talk about the spring. Well, who can stand against his cold? But he sends out his word and melts the snow. The springtime's even worse, it seems like, with the flooding. Not only is the power and beauty of, of nature at God's command, but it is not something that he exerts himself to command. He doesn't roll up his sleeves and grab hold of nature and exert himself. He simply speaks, and that's pretty key to this last section. It's all about God's Word. He speaks, and the, word, the world itself obeys. So what does this, as we come to a close, what does this grand, beautiful psalm about God's justice in the first section and His love in the section, section and His power in the last section? What's this all been leading to? Another surprise, I think. Another surprise. Read verse 19. What does it say? It says, He declares His word to Jacob, His statutes and rules to Israel. Rules. That's where we end up this morning, with God's rules. I remember uh, I was in Iraq in 2008 and 9, and uh, this would have been really early on in the uh, age of video chatting. So you've probably experienced some pretty good video chats recently with 20 or 30 or even 50 people on the screen at one time. You can hear everybody. Somehow you can still communicate. This was early on, pretty glitchy. And we had waited months, and me and actually my two brothers, we were together, and we were on the phone with his, uh, or on the video chat with his family, and his youngest, who was just a little boy, was so excited, and here's what he was excited about. He wanted to see ga- uh, Dad's gun. He wanted to see what he was carrying around in the war. And uh, it was a little surprising when he said, Dad, Dad, please, just show. And my brother was a little concerned. He's on the Internet, after all. I mean, is this something we really should be doing? But he gave in. I mean, how do you not give in to something like that? So he gave him a little look at the pistol he was carrying, and his son says, just heartbroken almost. You should have seen the disappointment. <laughs> Dad, you picked a pistol? I think he was expecting a bazooka. <laughs> and he's over there in the war fighting with a pistol. Well, that's a little bit like our psalm. It's a big buildup, and where do we end up? It's a little surprising to end up on God's rules. Someone might be listening in and say, I knew, I just knew it. All these Christians, they're about the do's and don'ts. They're about the rules. I knew they were going to suck me into this one way or another. Well, I just want to say, I almost want to confess how thankful I am for God's rules. What if it was up to me to do what was right in my own eyes? I'm so glad God gives me do's and don'ts. Do humble yourselves before the Lord. Don't hide. He will raise you up. 
do hope in His steadfast love. Don't think it's all about you. Hallelujah. It's fitting to praise the Lord. Read with me verse 20. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. You know we're a nation of priests in the church. Holy. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know His rules. Praise the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for all that you reveal to us 